Across 2022, CTSI Discovery Radio shared topics of research and translational science impacting everything from our local community. The medical college can reach beyond its walls to improve quality of life for individuals and families. To our national community. The CTSAs bring the local, regional, and national capacity to help ensure discoveries can be disseminated across the world. And innovations discovered locally impacting the U.S. and the world. It is a software program incorporated into every defibrillator in the world and represents the central diagnostic approach for heart attack in most communities throughout the world. Join us inside this special 2022 Year in Review edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Welcome to CTSI Discovery Radio. I'm your host, Brian Belmer. CTSI Discovery Radio is brought to you by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. The CTSI is a consortium of researchers, doctors, scientists, and others representing eight institutions, including the Medical College of Wisconsin, Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Children's Wisconsin, Freighters Hospital, Versity, Blood Center of Wisconsin, and the Zablocki VA Medical Center. The CTSI works collaboratively across all of our member institutions. Our mission is advancing health through research and discovery. Our year of shows in 2022 began with a focus on community health, both understanding the importance of our collective health and the dire consequences of neglecting it in our communities. Dr. John Moyer is a community health professor, pediatrician, and director of the Institute for Health and Equity at the Medical College of Wisconsin. I think about health, whether community or patients, is the holistic well-being of people, mind, body, and spirit. And a really important element and mission at MCW is community outreach and engagement. And that, of course, becomes an important part of our academic medical center connecting with community to advance well-being. We also heard expert insights from Dr. Stacy Young, Associate Professor, Department of Family and Community Medicine, and Interim Senior Associate Dean for Community Engagement at MCW. Simply, community health in medicine really prioritizes the determinants of health. That might include economic determinants, other social determinants, the physical environment. So it prioritizes different determinants to attain optimal quality of health. And both shared their concerns about the consequences of neglecting community health. Ryan, the consequences are really serious and concerning. It's not just about individual people, but we're all wrapped around by family, friends, and social support, our work our schools, our businesses. So our individual health depends substantially on these other levels. Very straightforward. The consequences are poor health outcomes among families and sometimes an entire community. There's really no community whose health we can afford to neglect. Learn about building thriving communities through wellness on our January show, episode number 93. For decades, statins have been prescribed for patients to fight and prevent cardiovascular disease. 
In February, we learned what statins are, how they work, and discovered a clinical trial exploring their role in preventing serious illness beyond cardiovascular disease. Dr. Jake Decker is an assistant professor, Department of Medicine, at the Medical College of Wisconsin, and a physician at Freighter Hospital, who told us... Statins are a general class of medications that we have that historically were developed to help lower cholesterol levels. And they do a very good job at lowering cholesterol levels, but probably more importantly, by doing that, they help lower the risk of cardiovascular disease, risk of heart attack, risk of stroke risk of plaque buildup and things like that. Assessing a patient's risk for cardiovascular disease is critically important. The majority of my role at Medical College of Wisconsin and Freighter is preventative medicine. When I sit down with the patient and think about how can I help the person in front of me lower their risk of having a heart attack or a stroke, we think about risk factors. And one of the things that falls in this category is cholesterol level. Statins have proven to be effective even beyond their role of lowering cholesterol. Part of that risk calculation includes age. And so sometimes patients may be relatively healthy, but because they've lived on this earth long enough, they have a high enough risk of a heart attack or stroke where a statin may be helpful for them. And now there's research on whether statins might also prevent dementia. Dr. Jeffrey Whittle is professor, Department of Medicine, at the Medical College of Wisconsin and co-principal investigator of the Preventable Clinical Trial Program. Why are statins considered to possibly have impact in preventing dementia? There's a fair amount of evidence that cardiovascular risk factors contribute to dementia. Treating high blood pressure is one of the few things we have that actually does reduce the risk of dementia. There was a thought that, well, perhaps treating cholesterol would be similarly beneficial because high cholesterol causes vascular disease and vascular disease contributes to dementia. Just like plaque and blockages can build up in the arteries for the heart, that same blockage and plaque buildup can happen in the small arteries that supply our brain. And so perhaps statins, in addition to helping protect the heart, can protect the brain against dementia. Discover how statins make disease preventable on our February show, episode number 94. Resuscitation has been an absolute cornerstone of emergency medicine, and for over 35 years, landmark discoveries in resuscitation research have been made right here in our community. Our March show focuses on the career highlights of the Medical College of Wisconsin's Dr. Tom Ofterheide, an internationally recognized expert and pioneer in emergency cardiac care, and the presentation he gave titled Original Discovery in Resuscitation Research, a 35-year history. It's always best to start at the beginning. This man... Joseph Darren was the first chair of this Department of Emergency Medicine and founded the Freydert Emergency Department. Shortly thereafter, he founded the first emergency medicine residency in Wisconsin and I believe the fourth in the country, one that I benefited from in my own personal education. Throughout his presentation, Dr. Ofterheide shared his insights and expertise in pioneering many resuscitation diagnostic tools and devices, including the evolution of the electrocardiogram. Now, at that time, and still today, the only way you can diagnose a heart attack is with a 12-lead electrocardiogram. At that time, it was about the size of a shopping cart. It was only located in a hospital or a clinic, 
It was printed out on a piece of paper, and it had to be interpreted by a physician. Essentially, what we did was we brought the patient to the machine. Dr. Ofter Heidi envisioned something different, something better. I was working with Marquette Electronics at that time, developing computerized interpretation of 12 lead ECGs. And I looked at a recent electrocardiograph that they did. And I said, you know, I bet if we digitized this, miniaturized it, and put it on the ambulance, we could diagnose heart attacks in people's living rooms and facilitate and reduce the time to definitive treatment. So a prototype was created. But while archaic by today's technology standards, historically... This was the ability for the first time to take the electrocardiogram to the patient. Here, 35 years of groundbreaking discoveries in resuscitation research on our March show, episode number 95. In April, we learned all about albinism as we discovered what the disease is and how it impacts those who have it. First, from a dermatological perspective, from Dr. Stephen Humphrey, Assistant Professor, Department of Dermatology at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Albinism is a group of inherited disorders that cause a reduction or a complete lack of pigment in our tissues, particularly the skin, the eyes, and the hair. We also gained an ophthalmological perspective from Dr. Erica Wirtz, a research scientist at MCW's Eye Institute. A lot of patients do have light-colored eyes, which is kind of the first thing that most people think about. I know a lot of people assume that everyone with albinism has pink or maybe very light blue eyes. This is true for maybe a small percentage of people, but there's also a lot of people with albinism who might just have blue eyes that might look similar to someone else who doesn't have albinism just happens to have blue eyes. And there are also some types of albinism that don't really affect eye color, and so those people could have any color of eyes. And we heard the experience of a woman who discovered albinism has been in her family's genetics for generations undetected until her own son was diagnosed with it. When the doctor said he had albinism, I thought, wait a minute, this definitely runs in my family. When I was little... We were followed by eye doctors, and they had said, if your vision were worse, I would think you had albinism of the eyes. But none of us met criteria for a diagnosis of albinism of the eyes. Well, maybe we have an albino gene mutation that probably is the explanation for this. So I did suspect that there was something odd in the family. Learn all about albinism on our April show. Episode number 96. As precision medicine continues improving healthcare practice and research, our May show focused on one area of medicine, otolaryngology, to discover the impact of the groundbreaking otoclonomics research program at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Dr. David Friedland is professor and chief, Department of Otolaryngology, and director of the CTSI's Clinical and Translational Research Center, who informed us that... Otolaryngology, which is also known as ENT, or ear, nose, and throat, 
is a field that focuses on sensory, functional, inflammatory, infectious, cosmetic, and neoplastic conditions in the head and neck region. And he shared how precision medicine is making its way into otolaryngology through a platform he helped create. Otoclonomics is a program we developed here at Medical College. It's what we call our program to measure clinical outcomes in otolaryngology. Jasmine Adams is director of the Otoclonomics Research Program at MCW who told us the research platform aims to improve health outcomes throughout the measurement of social, medical, biological determinants of disease. These outcome assessments aim to improve healthcare delivery for common ENT conditions in Wisconsin. She also shared that otoclonomics focuses on individual patients. This shift has come from a universal problem that healthcare has faced, which is the fair allocation of healthcare resources across populations. And a solution to this problem has been individual care that maximizes the individual's welfare, not just for what their supposed welfare should be based on their demographic. Fortunately, otoclonomics isn't just the future of medicine. It's here now. Otoclonomics is a department-wide focus on clinical outcomes and personalized medicine. The program has engaged our faculty, residents, and our medical students and has already been integrated into aspects of clinical care and has supported additional research into some of these diseases that greatly impact our community. Explore the road to otoclonomics on our May show, episode number 97. NCATS is the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences, the arm of the National Institutes of Health charged with overseeing and funding entities focused on clinical research, including the CTSI. In June, we heard from Dr. Joni Rutter, acting director, who shared how NCATS is dedicated to turning promising research discoveries into real-world applications for improving our nation's health. First, in a presentation she made while visiting MCW, Dr. Rudder shared a monumental challenge NCATS and medical research face. So there are about 10,000 diseases that we think are out there, probably more. There are about 7,000 rare diseases with known molecular basis, and only about 500 of those have a treatment. So 95% of all diseases out there don't have a therapy available. So NCATS is building end-to-end solutions to address these types of challenges in translational research. Our mission is to turn basic science observations into health solutions, developing cross-cutting collaborations and partnerships, doing outreach and engagement with communities, rebuild robust platforms and technologies that are more predictive to help us get an understanding of how we can advance science faster and better and more effectively. And by doing all of these things, then we can take more productive risks to remove the scientific and operational barriers holding us back. In hopes of achieving their goal to bring more treatments to all people more quickly. Later, in a one-on-one interview, Dr. Rudder said a major component of NCAT's success are the entities created by their Clinical and Translational Science Award program. One of those entities she's referring to is the CTSI. The ability of the leadership to take the CTSI shows you there is confidence in the CTSA program and what they contribute to the understanding of health and disease within the communities we serve. 
She even offered this about our show. It's the CTSI of Southeast Wisconsin. But, for example, Discovery Radio, this reaches many different states, many different countries. It's using resources like the radio and the podcast to help ensure that discoveries can be disseminated across the world. Hear how NCATS is where science goes to become health on our June show, episode number 98. It's the most commonly diagnosed chromosomal condition in the U.S. Chances are you've heard of Down syndrome, but on our July show, we learned all about it from Dr. Pamela Schultz, a pediatrician specializing in complex care special needs at Children's Wisconsin. Dr. Schultz told us Down syndrome isn't a singular condition. In fact, there are three types of Down syndrome. The most common type of Down syndrome, which is about 95% of the people, have trisomy 21. It happens when there is an extra complete third separate chromosome or extra piece of chromosome 21 instead of the usual two copies. Is the extra chromosome inherited from one or both parents? No. The extra chromosome is something that just happens when the cells are dividing. It's not something that's inherited or passed down. It happens randomly. There's no reason for it to happen. It's not inherited by the parents in typical trisomy 21. We also heard from Stacy, who shared her experience of being a parent of a child with Down syndrome. I had to go through a emotional process of outbursts and tears and Google research. And my husband just kind of stared at the wall and I was like, what you doing over there? And he was like, I'm just thinking we process differently, but we did give each other the space to do so. But she told us that by accepting and embracing her son's Down syndrome, she hasn't changed her approach to parenting. I don't think too much. We're doing what we think we would have already done. The only difference is we have a larger community. We have physical therapists and occupational therapists that he's seeing. But I don't think the way that we're parenting is any different. Gain a better understanding of Down syndrome and those impacted by it on our July show. Episode number 99. Emerging technologies are continually changing medical practice, whether improving how we take medications or by creating new innovations that increase treatment options. In August, we learned about a couple of emerging technologies with roots in our community that are changing the future of medicine. First, we heard from Dr. Abey Chauhan, Associate Professor of Biopharmaceutical Science in MCW's School of Pharmacy on his research in nanoparticle technology to target the delivery of medication directly to the source needing treatment. So just how small are the nanoparticles in his research? Basically, if you take a human here, that's around 50 to 100 micrometers. Nano is a thousand times less than one micrometer. They are very small particles. Tiny particles, but huge building blocks. All human building blocks came from nano-sized dimensions, like DNA, RNA, proteins. The major building block of life are from nano-sized dimensions. We also heard from Dr. Brandon Teft from the Marquette University MCW Joint Department of Biomedical Engineering. Dr. Awi Tomita Mitchell is a professor of pediatric cardiothoracic surgery at MCW. 
Together, they explain the key advantages of 3D bioprinting living heart tissue. We can create tissue of a custom size and shape and also made from a patient's own unique cells that has their own unique genetic makeup. So this is especially important in the context of congenital heart disease because each patient has a unique underlying genetic cause for their disease. We have worked to generate what are called induced pluripotent stem cells, or iPSCs, from a variety of sources, cells from skin, from blood, and more recently, cells collected from urine. The cells are the key to the whole thing. They have this incredibly valuable resource at Children's Wisconsin called the Congenital Heart Disease Tissue Bank. They've collected biospecimens that have been generously donated, and we're actually able to reprogram the cells in these biospecimens into virtually any cell type in the body, including beating heart cells. Discover these emerging technologies on The August Show, our 100th episode. In 2022, a global outbreak of the monkeypox virus was making headlines. In September, we enlisted the help of an expert to explain what monkeypox are and who is at highest risk for getting them. Dr. Mary Beth Graham is Associate Chief and Professor, Department of Medicine, Division of Infectious Disease at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Monkeypox belongs to a group of viruses called orthopox viruses. It's related to the smallpox virus. So that's kind of a brief introduction to what monkeypox is. It's a virus we've known about for a very long time. Along the way, we learned about the different known variants of monkeypox. To what we refer to as clades of monkeypox. So there is a Central African clade and a West African clade of the virus. And they differ quite a bit. The Central African monkeypox, which is primarily seen only in Africa, can be much more severe and have higher morbidity mortality with that presentation. And we learn how monkeypox is spread. In to transmit monkeypox from one individual to another, there needs to be close personal contact with a source, that being an individual, or if somebody has monkeypox and they have bedding and then somebody comes and sleeps in that bed, could they be exposed to the virus? And the answer is yes. It is less efficient mode of transmission than skin-to-skin contact with somebody who has active lesions. Also in September, we explored an interventional program designed to reduce stress and burnout among healthcare workers, utilizing both traditional and holistic medical approaches. Dr. Shub Agarwal is an assistant professor of cardiology at the Medical College of Wisconsin who tells us about his Heal the Healer holistic program. What we are offering is for individuals who are identified as moderate to severe burnt out, then you will go to our 12-week transformative program where we indulge you in a set of physical, psychological, immunological exercise with diet, meditation, grounding, and resiliency building measures. Learn more by listening to our September show. Episode number 101. Artificial intelligence is impacting and causing changes in many industries, and healthcare is no exception. Our October show first focused on what artificial intelligence is with Dr. R.J. Knowing, 
Assistant Professor of Computer Science at the Milwaukee School of Engineering. Alan Turing, the father of computing, came up with this thing called the Turing test. Let's assume you're chatting on a computer in like a chat window. Can you tell the difference between a human and a computer in that case? If you can't, then that computer is considered an artificial intelligence. Anything that mimics a human convincingly is an artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence has the ability to think much more quickly than humans. Being able to identify key components in an image nearly instantaneously where the human will take a few minutes to do that. We also learned how AI is being applied in clinical health care from Dr. Kevin Cohoon, Assistant Professor of Cardiology at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Artificial intelligence is a novel digital data science tool that has begun to rapidly permeate the field of medicine and can truly revolutionize healthcare and change millions to billions of lives. And we explored some of the ethical, regulatory, and social issues surrounding AI with Dr. Fabrice Jodorand, Professor of Bioethics and Medical Humanities in the Institute for Health and Equity at MCW who told us perhaps the most fundamental ethical issue around artificial intelligence in healthcare is how these technologies will impact us as human beings. And here it's not just about the patient, but also the clinician. I don't think AI will replace human beings, but we could reduce the role of physicians to technicians. Gain real understanding of artificial intelligence on our October show. Episode number 102. In November, we ended our year of new shows where it began by focusing on community health. But this time, we focused on a community partnership at the intersection of clinical research, the faith community, and healthcare. Dr. Doriel Ward is the CTSI's Chief Administrative Officer. Assistant Dean of Clinical and Translational Research and Executive Director, who shared the many facets of the CTSI Community Care Initiative, initially describing it as a robust, novel, innovative, and collaborative four-divisional community-based clinical and transitional research and education infrastructure that really sets a long-term platform for clinical and transitional-related activities across the transitional spectrum. In CDSI, we use the philosophy of in the community, for the community, and by the community. And she told us that the CTSI Community Care Initiative was launched after several years of building deep trust and meaningful relationship with our faith-based partner, Wisconsin Northwest Jurisdiction Church of God in Christ, Word of Hope Ministries, a 40 Cathedral Church of God in Christ located in the Sherman Park area in Milwaukee, a really underserved community. Bishop C.H. McClelland is president and founder of Word of Hope Ministries, who said teaming with the CTSI aligns with the church's mission to serve the community. It was a wonderful opportunity for the faith community to connect with academia, in this case the medical college, to speak to the health disparities, especially with black and brown communities. So out of this partnership, we saw where the medical college can partner with the faith community to improve the quality of health in these communities. Thankfully for Word of Hope, the medical college is not away from the inner city. They are in the central city, boots on the ground, working with the faith community to make sure that we deal with health crisis. 
We also heard from Dr. Marcy Berger, Professor of Cardiovascular Medicine at MCW, who's helping lead the initiative's Communicare Risk Assessment and Prevention Program. This idea of can you access more people by providing health care within the community was interesting to me. And so when this opportunity came up to form an alliance with the churches, I thought that would be really a great opportunity to screen for atrial fibrillation and high blood pressure in our city. People in the community are cognizant of the fact that we're going to them and they appreciate that. This is building trust and people will be more enthusiastic about participating in the research endeavors. Discover the CTSI Community Care Initiative on our November show, episode number 103. And now we've gone through our entire year of shows on this special 2022 year in review edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. As always, we thank all of our interview guests from throughout the year. And, of course, we especially thank you for listening to, supporting, and sharing CTSI Discovery Radio throughout this year and in the year to come. I hope you've discovered something by listening to each of this year's shows. And I'm doubly hopeful that you'll join us in 2023. We'll be bringing you another full year of shows that you won't want to miss. Throughout 2023, catch CTSI Discovery Radio on the third Friday every month at noon. Make an appointment on your calendar and join us for each episode. On behalf of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin and all of our affiliate partners and members, I'm Brian Belmer, wishing you a blessed holiday season and a happier, healthier new year. For more information about research or to listen to the podcast of any of our shows on demand, please visit our website at ctsi.mcw.edu. CTSI Discovery Radio is written, produced, and hosted by Brian Belmer in collaboration with WMSE Radio. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Reza Shakir.